Hi, everyone, and welcome. Do you know what time it is? Do you? That's right. It's time for your midweek Bible study. Hi, I'm Pastor Tim from Word of Hope Christian Church in New Braunfels, Texas. It is awesome to be with you once again. Thanks for joining us. Today is Wednesday, January 17th. And in case you're in the greater New Braunfels area and you did not get the word, we are not going to be meeting in person today. So you have this resource right here on this social media platform to catch up and stay current in our Bible study series. We're continuing in that series, in fact, in the book of Hebrews. Today we'll be covering chapter 3 and we'll be talking about how Christ is greater than Moses. But before we do that, let's have a word of prayer. Gracious Heavenly Father, Almighty God, we celebrate you, we worship you, and we thank you for the very life that we have today. Lord, I pray that you will bless all that have come to listen to this study today, to participate in it. Lord, I just pray that you would just open our hearts to receive your truth today. In Jesus' name, and everyone said, Amen and Amen. All right, turn in your Bible or Bible apps to Hebrews chapter 3, and let's begin with verse 1. Verse 1 reads, And so, dear brothers and sisters who belong to God and are partners with those called to heaven, think carefully about this Jesus, whom we declare to be God's messenger and high priest. Our first question today is this, to whom is this letter written and who are they to focus on and why? If you remember last week in chapter two, we discovered that we are brothers and sisters along with Christ. In this verse, the writer says we belong to God, meaning we're set apart for Jesus for service to him. As a result of this relationship, we are called or bound to heaven, as it said in chapter two, verse 10. If you remember also last time in chapter two, verse one, the writer warned Christians not to drift away from their faith. In this verse, the writer gives a command that will help us keep from drifting, and that command is, think carefully about this Jesus. This command comes from a strong Greek verb, meaning to give thoughtful and diligent reflection. In this verse, the writer also calls Jesus God's messenger and high priest. Jesus was sent as God's representative. God sent Jesus to earth as a messenger. Jesus returned to earth as our high priest, a role introduced in chapter 2, verses 17 and 18. He came to deliver God's message to people. He returned, bringing people back to God. Jesus now serves as the mediator between people and God, and these words would have been especially meaningful to Jewish Christians. Next, verse 2, it says, For he was faithful to God who appointed him, just as Moses served faithfully when he was entrusted with God's entire house. Here's the question. What is the writer's overall point in this verse? You know, I believe the overall point is that Jesus is superior to Moses. Few people in scripture have had three roles, prophet, priest, and leader. Moses was one such man honored by the Jews. The writer says that Moses served faithfully when he was entrusted with God's entire house. Moses' life and writings attest to his faithfulness. To the Jewish people, Moses was a great hero. He had led their ancestors, the Israelites, from Egyptian bondage to the border of the Promised Land. He was the prophet through whom God had given the law and had written the first five books of the Old Testament. The phrase God's entire house, I think that most likely refers to God's chosen people, among whom Moses exercised his ministry. Moses had served God faithfully, and the writer of Hebrews honored Moses by comparing him to Jesus, who was faithful to God, who appointed him. Moses led the people of Israel out of Egyptian bondage. Christ leads us out of bondage to sin. Both were faithful to the work God had given them to do. Verse 3 is next. It says, but Jesus deserves far more glory than Moses, just as a person who builds a house deserves more praise than the house itself. The question is, in this verse, the writer expands on the idea that Jesus was superior to Moses. How does he make his point? Simply put, Moses was a human servant. Jesus is worthy of greater honor as the central figure of faith because Jesus is God himself. 
Although Moses faithfully served in God's house, among God's people, in other words, and deserved credit for his work, Jesus deserves far more glory because he created that house and possesses the glory of God himself. Moses worked within the house, but Christ oversees the house. The Jewish Christians respected Moses as one of God's greatest messengers. In order to show that Christ was superior to the Old Covenant, the writer both compared and contrasted Jesus and Moses. Because of Moses' faithfulness, he is worthy of great honor, but Jesus is worthy of greater honor. Even the great leader Moses is nowhere near being Christ's equal. Through Moses' lawgiver and leader, God gave the Old Covenant. It was merely a shadow of what was coming. Moses was an intermediary, the people's leader and intercessor. I'd encourage you to read Exodus 32:11 and Numbers 14, verse 13. He could not save people's souls. Jesus enacted the new covenant whereby salvation could be offered to all who believe. Let's go to verse 4. It says, For every house has a builder, but the one who built everything is God. Here's the question. Here the writer continues to compare and contrast Moses and Jesus. But this also points to the deity of Christ. How so? I think the point is that if the builder deserves more praise than the house, then how much more does God deserve praise because he built everything? And this refers not just to the Jewish nation or the Christian church, but to all of creation. The switch from calling Jesus the builder to calling God the builder affirms Christ's deity, or in other words, divine status. These first readers, who were considering abandoning Christianity and returning to their Jewish roots and Jewish laws, were in danger of praising the house more than the builder. That kind of action would effectively turn them away from the one who is God, Jesus Christ. Next, verses 5 and 6. Let's read them together. Moses was certainly faithful in God's house as a servant. His work was an illustration of the truths God would later reveal. But Christ as the Son is in charge of God's entire house, and we are God's house if we keep our courage and remain confident in our hope in Christ. These verses repeat the thought from verse 2. What is that thought, and what else is the writer saying about Christ and us? The thought from verse 2 was that Moses was certainly faithful in God's house as a servant, but he was merely a servant. Moses' work was an illustration, as it is, of the truths God would reveal later. Moses wrote the first five books of the Old Testament, recording Israel's history. But that history was not complete. Moses' words pointed toward what was to come, which was fulfillment through God's Son, Jesus. The writer then says that Christ as the Son is superior to Moses as a son is superior to a servant. While both had been appointed and both were faithful, Moses was a servant while Christ is in charge of the entire house, referring to the church, the believers. Those who are part of God's household do so through faith in Christ. Christ makes our salvation secure, but that salvation comes with a solemn responsibility to keep our courage and remain confident in our hope in Christ. Those who profess Christ ought to demonstrate true faith. God had required faithfulness from the great leader Moses and even from the Son himself, all of God's people, his household, the brothers and sisters of Christ, must remain faithful. Christ lives in believers. He will help us remain courageous and hopeful to the end. We're not saved by being steadfast and firm in our faith, but our courage and hope do reveal that our faith is real. Without this enduring faithfulness, we could easily be blown away by the winds of temptation, false teaching, or persecution. Next, let's look at verses 7-9. through nine. That is why the Holy Spirit says, Today, when you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts as Israel did when they rebelled, when they tested me in the wilderness. There your ancestors tested and tried my patience, even though they saw my miracles for 40 years. Here's the question. 
So far, the writer has continued to show Christ as the ultimate example, and we should hold fast to faith in him despite hard times. In these verses, the writer introduces an example of Israel's history to explain what happens when a saved believer fails to hold fast in their trust for God. What is his point? First of all, let me say that God, through the Holy Spirit, is the true author of the Old Testament. The Holy Spirit inspired the prophets and forefathers. The Holy Spirit used the quote from Psalm 95 to speak to the first century Hebrew believers, and it applies to believers today as well. Psalm 95 is a psalm of worship, and it was used as an opening to synagogue worship on Friday evening and Sabbath morning. The first part of this psalm calls God's people to worship him. The second part, the part that's quoted here, warns the people that worshipers can only worship God if they're not rebelling against him. The Hebrew readers knew the story well. The generation who left Egypt had witnessed astounding miracles, yet they had lost faith in God. They were poised to enter the promised land, but they became afraid of the spies' report of walled cities and giant men. At that point, verse 8 says they rebelled, hardening their hearts, refusing to trust that God would help them take the land he promised them. Their unbelief kept them from receiving the rewards and blessings God had for them. Although God had miraculously rescued them from Egypt and demonstrated his power and care over his people, the people still disobeyed him. Not only at that point, but through the 40 years of wandering in the wilderness, the people constantly tested and tried God's patience. He continued to do miracles on their behalf, but they continued to harden their hearts against him. Beloved, doesn't this sound like our lives sometimes as we're walking with God? We're just as disobedient sometimes. Sometimes God is right there trying to show us through all the years of walking with him how much he's there and how much he cares and loves us and wants us to follow him, walk alongside him, but yet we still harden our hearts. What a wake-up call. This passage, it reminds the readers of this letter the consequences of hardening their hearts against God by using the example of their ancestors. Hopefully these Christians would learn from their ancestors' mistakes. Believers are warned, today when you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts. Beloved, hard hearts can be the result of disobedience, rebellion, lack of trust, neglect of worship, refusal to submit, and ungratefulness for what God has done for us. Next, verses 10 and 11. Let's look at those together. So I was angry with them, and I said, their hearts always turn away from me. They refuse to do what I tell them. So in my anger, I took an oath. They will never enter my place of rest. Here's the question. This is part of the quotation of Psalm 95, verses 10 and 11, in fact. What does this tell you about how God responds when we rebel against him? And I would encourage you on the side, read Psalm 95. It's not very long, but just take a read of it so you can be familiar with it. Now, here's my answer. The words expressed in Psalm 95 show that rebellion makes God angry. God does not look away from sin. He acts against it and punishes it. God grew angry because the people's hearts always turned away from him. The people continually turned away from God in the actions, attitudes, thoughts, and beliefs they had. If the hearts of the people had honored God, they would have trusted him and entered the promised land. But their rebellion led to punishment. The Israelites lost their chance to enter the promised land when God said, They will never enter my place of rest. Now look at the last word, rest, in that line. God's rest has several meanings in scripture. First, the seventh day of creation and the weekly Sabbath commemorating it. Genesis 2.2 Hebrews 4, verses 4 through 9. The promised land of Canaan, Deuteronomy 12, verses 8 through 12, and Psalm 95. Third, peace with God now because of our relationship with Christ through faith, Matthew 12, 28, Hebrews 4, 1, Hebrews 4, 3, and Hebrews 4, 8 through 11. And finally, 
our future eternal life with Christ, Hebrews 4, verses 8 through 11. Now, all of these meanings, they were probably very familiar to the Jewish readers of the book, so they would have understood the connection. Next is verse 12. It says, Be careful then, dear brothers and sisters. Make sure that your own hearts are not evil and unbelieving, turning you away from the living God. Here's the question. In this verse, the explanation of Psalm 95 is made explicit. Can you explain? The lesson from Israel's experience applies to all believers. The readers had not yet revolted against Christ or drifted away from him, but they were in danger of emulating Israel's rebellion. The Israelites had seen great miracles from God's hand with their own eyes, but still had fallen away from God. Christians must be careful not to fall into the same snare. No Christian is immune from turning away from or rejecting God. Sometimes people gradually drift, as in chapter 2, verses 1 to 4. Sometimes they rebel. We believers should carefully watch our Christian lives. An evil and unbelieving heart, what does that lead to? It leads to dire consequences. It can turn you away from the living God, the verse says. As the Israelites demonstrated, hard hearts can cause rebellion. Turning away from Christianity implies more than turning away from a system of beliefs or a set of doctrines. It means turning away from God himself. Next is verse 13. It says, You must warn each other every day while it is still today, so that none of you will be deceived by sin and hardened against God. The question is, what does the writer say believers are to warn each other about? Believers should continually to warn or remind each other to turn away from sin and stay focused on Christ. People can't live as Christians in a vacuum. Christians need each other so that they don't become deceived by sin and hardened against God. Verse 14 is next. It says, For if we are faithful to the end, trusting God just as firmly as when we first believed, we will share in all that belongs to Christ. Here's the question. What does the writer say is the result of trust and obedience to God? As time goes by, we must not let doubts or fears draw us away from God. The writer was concerned that the faith of some of these Hebrew Christians was faltering. He urged them to hold on so that they would, as it said, share in all that belongs to Christ in the end. Jewish readers of Hebrews would understand this picture of faith because it was the actual experience of the generation that had fled Egypt in the Exodus. Through unfaithfulness and rebellion, the Israelites had lost God's blessings. The writer will share more on this in the coming verses, and we'll talk about it. Verse 15 is up next. It says, remember what it says. Today, when you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts as Israel did when they rebelled. The question here is, here the writer puts an exclamation point by repeating verse 7. Why do you think he did this? I think that by repeating that verse today when you hear his voice, the writer continues to remind the people not to harden their hearts. When the Israelites rebelled in the wilderness, they did not trust God, nor were they faithful to the end. Christians must be. The repeated word from verse 13, today, that word today, it shows the urgency of this message. Today we can act. We don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. Next up, let's look at verses 16 and 17 together. And who was it who rebelled against God even though they heard his voice? Wasn't it the people Moses led out of Egypt? And who made God angry for 40 years? Wasn't it the people who sinned, whose corpses lay in the wilderness? Our question is, the writer begins with two rhetorical questions. What's the point of those questions? I think the writer's saying that a good beginning does not guarantee a victorious end. If people could rebel against God, even if they had actually heard his voice, the danger of falling away is real for any Christian. The Israelites saw the plagues God sent on Egypt before Moses led them out, yet they still rebelled against God. 
The rebellious Israelites failed to enter the promised land. Why? Because they didn't believe in God's protection. So God sent them into the wilderness for 40 years. Those who rebelled died in the wilderness without ever experiencing the promised land. Beloved, open defiance of God leads to catastrophic results, barring entrance into God's rest. We must not take God's wrath lightly. That's a warning for us still. And now our last two verses for today, verses 18 and 19. They read, And to whom was God speaking when he took an oath that they would never enter his rest? Wasn't it the people who disobeyed him? So we see that because of their unbelief, they were not able to enter his rest. Here's our final question. A third rhetorical question starts these last two verses. What would be the result of the Israelites' rebellion? The result would be that the rebellious generation of Israelites would not be able to enter his rest. What does that mean? They were not going to be able to enter the promised land because of their unbelief. But this unbelief was more than just a mental process. Their unbelief caused them to disobey. There's a strong connection between unbelief, which is the underlying attitude, and disobedience, the resulting action. Both their actions and their beliefs condemned them. The nation had been rescued from Egypt, had seen God's salvation, and had been given the hope of a new land, yet still they disobeyed. Christians have been rescued from sin, have seen God's salvation, and been given the hope of eternal life. For those who reject Christ, the penalty is greater than it was for the Israelites. The penalty is God's rejection. Just as Christ was greater than Moses, so those rejecting Christ will receive greater punishment than those who rejected Moses. Well, folks, that brings us to the end of yet another amazing study in Hebrews. Chapter 3 did not disappoint for sure. Let me recap it for us. In this chapter, the writer used a reference to Israel's wandering in the desert from the story of Exodus. The nation of Israel came to the border of the promised land and then lost confidence in God. So rather than trusting him, most of the people just gave up hope. And as a result, only a tiny remnant of the nation was allowed to enter into Canaan, the promised land. The writer also showed us clearly that Jesus Christ was superior to Moses and all of Moses' accomplishments. So as believers, we need to encourage each other to fully trust in God in order to see fulfillment of his promises. Next time, we're going to study the first part of chapter 4. It's a really long chapter, so we're going to take it in two pieces. We're going to study first Hebrews chapter 4, verses 1 to 13, and we'll talk about promised rest for God's people. That's going to be next time. Thanks again for being with us today. I hope you all are safe and warm wherever you are, especially those that are having the cold snaps right now. Have a great rest of your day and week. We'll see you right back here next time. Until then, God bless you. Go in peace. Thanks for listening. Join us again next time for another encouraging message from God's Word. To find out more about our ministry, look us up on the web at www.whccnb.org. Word of Hope Christian Church. Real people. A real God. Real hope.